0: I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me today is David Dye, author of Tomorrow Together, Essays of Hope, Healing, and Humanity. The 21st century hasn't started the way many expected we confront a potent mix of the global pandemic, global warming, the resurgence of authoritarianism, white nationalism, and war that once again threatens to consume the planet. It, it can feel frustrating and hopeless, but there is hope. We have the resources and wisdom, and most importantly, we have one another. Best selling author David Dye brings us a deeply moving collection of personal essays that highlight moments of wonder, beauty, and connection writing with warmth and vulnerability. He's poignant, challenging, funny, and meditative. After two decades as an executive and elected official, David and his wife, Karen, uh, founded Let's Grow Leaders, a training firm focused on human-centered leadership development. Welcome to the show, David. Nice to have you on.
1: i Catherine. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, as I, the title of your book, Tomorrow Together, Essays of Hope, Healing, and Humanity, right now it really doesn't feel like that in the context of what's happening to us around the world. Uh, so my question is, how can we achieve, and I know you've done this through your essays, but tell us, how. You know, what, is, what, can, what are our expectations? How can we have hope, healing, and hum- humanity when, to me, it feels like we're more polarized than ever?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a big question, isn't it? And uh, again, <laughs> for question. me, it always <laughs> it is yeah. so big. It it can't. I think the the part of it is you, you know to acknowledge that it feels so overwhelming because it feels bigger than any one of us. And uh, you know, so just acknowledging that, like it is big, and these things are huge. And you know, when you when you talk about changing anything, you can't change a huge thing all at once. You have to start with small slivers, small change here and there, change a a process, have a conversation with one person and and build it out from there. And so part of the, the message and part of what I hope to convey through all the different angles and lenses of these essays is that hope really starts with our connection to one another. And so when we're looking for a place to start, it's who can I connect with? Who thinks differently than I do, but I can acknowledge them see their dignity, have that conversation, connect at a human level and and we have to start there and uh, you know when when you look at the forces that, as you said, you know with polarization and everything else going on, there is a lot that's acting against that connection for us right now, um you know whether it's our technology and uh you know that fast paced information that we get and the social media that thrives on conflict uh, to keep our eyeballs fixed to the screens. You know, all those different forces, they're real. And we have to be aware of them and, uh, and manage those. They're not going away. Uh, so what are we going to do as individuals to pursue a more human-centered existence?
0: So on an individual basis, and I think that's the key, individual basis. First, you have to be aware, as you said. How are you... Let, I, we'll start with you. Um, who do you connect to? How did you... Well, maybe how did you begin to... Um, engage in this process yourself.
1: You know, I have been talking about this book and this subject for the longest time, Catherine, and you're the first person to ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love it. Uh, You know, I have, this has been a burning question for me from a very young age. When I say very young, I mean like age 11. I took out a, a legal pad one day when I was 11 or 12 years old, and I wrote out this question to myself. We just did like big block child handwriting. How can we best live together? <laughs> if you <laughs> can imagine an 11 or 12 year old writing a question like that. But it's a, it's a question that has just, you know, bubbled up within me for so many decades because we do have different perspectives and we have different cultures and we have different realities and we value different things. And yet we share this planet, we share this rock you know, the the miracle of life is that to the best of our knowledge, as many billions of light years as we can see, we're it. This is it. This is our home and it's what we've got. And so we have one another. And the the to me, part of this whole journey starts with recognizing how miraculous that is, how precious that is, and how important it is that we find our way forward with one another. And so part of that is, To to me, when you're talking about the practical side, the how, is remaining curious, Uh, to recognize with humility that whatever I believe, it's what I believe based on my experiences, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've read, my best thinking. But I need to pair that with humility to recognize that there's always more to learn, that I don't know other people's experiences. And if I can stay curious about that, connection becomes possible.
0: And you have stayed curious about it, obviously, because you wrote the book, but I'm going back to that 11-year-old, I'm assuming pre-pubescent 11-year-old, how, and I'm going to keep on sort of hammering this question, but how did you maintain that curiosity from, say, 11 years old, we're talking about middle school, high school, on and on, um, you know, given all that yeah. I, des- yeah, I described in the beginning in yeah. the intro, yeah.
1: Yeah. The short answer is, I didn't always maintain it. I mean, if we're being real and and human and connected, is that I have had periods of my life where I felt I had the truth with a capital T. And um, and if I were to to say the easiest shortcut to um, cut through all that was suffering um, and pain. Um, you know, I talk in the book, uh, you know, about moments of wonder and joy and connection, but I also talk about life experiences uh, of sadness and um, real hurt of loved ones with suicide attempts and, um, you know, betrayals, you know, professional betrayals and and success and failure and all those kinds of things. And um, those times, if we really recognize, if we learn how to grieve, uh, also help us recognize that's something everyone goes through. Uh, and for me, when I st- talk about staying curious, I go back to, uh, and I wrote an essay about this uh, in, in the book, but I was working at a human service organization uh, that worked with teachers in, in classrooms. And part of my, I had an administrative, so basically you can go to the principal. And I was visiting a classroom doing a, an observation, and these, uh, these two teachers who were co-teaching had put quotes up around their classroom. From one religious tradition, doesn't matter which tradition it is, but they were all from clearly from that tradition, which was their tradition. And I said, "Listen, um, the quotes align with the overall content that you're talking about, but you are um, you can't have one religious tradition in this class. It's not a course about that that tradition." And I said, "You are welcome to if you want to include quotes from a variety of different traditions." Uh, and have them in your room, then that's absolutely appropriate for what you're doing and the course you're teaching. And they said, well, why can't we just have these? And I said, well, imagine that your child, I'm, so I'm talking to the teacher, I said, imagine that your child, from your tradition, went to a classroom with a teacher who was of a different tradition. Let's say they were Hindu or Buddhist or Christian or Jewish or Muslim. It doesn't matter what the tradition is, but they believe differently and their classroom was filled with quotes from that tradition. Would you be okay with that? And they said, well, no, we would not. I said, okay, well, why should, their, why should their child be okay in your classroom? The exact same situation. And the answer they gave me was troubling. They said, well, because our belief is the truth, and with spoken with a capital T. And it was one of those moments for me that was, you know gosh it, it was a reflection for me that i never ever wanted to lose that curiosity that understanding that as deeply held as i can believe something to not see the beauty wonder and awe in other people's perspectives and 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 where their beliefs and the power of of their uh, their faith their love their you know their values everything that they're doing where that comes from uh and so that has been for me something that's helped restore my curiosity is recognizing the danger when I lose it.
0: Uh, that's a great point, and, and I can share a, a, per, a personal story. One of my grandson, who's six years old, asked me, "Is God real?" Now, this is a big question for Granny. <laughs> is uh, I said, "Well, I said, you know, first of all, I said there are a lot people believe in a lot of different different gods. Hundreds, I think, even thousands, right?" And and some people don't believe in God at all. And and I kind of stopped there. Let him and have I that was it. I didn't say too much more, but I think he hadn't really thought about that because it sort of addresses the point you're trying to make. You know, there's just one God and the the way I believe or the way my parents believe. But think about all the gods that people believe in. So uh hearing you say that, I I, I think I'm on the right track.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> You know, and, and part of it for me is I want to acknowledge the you – know, people ask me often about these, these questions. Well, um, you know, uh, do you believe that or this or whatever? And I love participating in other people's traditions because there is beauty in it. There's something, there's wisdom, there's life, there's something to learn from. Uh, And we all have our shadow sides, too. I mean, it's part of the the reality of human existence is we are capable of great beauty and amazing awe and wonder. And we have a dark side, too, that, you know, has all of its will to power and fighting and and all the darkness that that comes to. And so, you know, to recognize that and to celebrate what's good and to to help one another manage the other side.
0: You, You talk about the concept of togetherness. What does mm-hmm. that mean in, let's say, in the context of your book and belief system?
1: For me, when I think of togetherness, it's I want to acknowledge our differences of opinion and different perspectives and different values. The together, So that's, you know, we have the differences. The together part is we share a planet and we have to figure out. I mean, we don't have to. <laughs> I don't like the alternative, but <laughs> I would hope that we are able to figure out how to share the space with one another. And that's not easily done, but it is doable. And so when I say together at the broadest level, that's what I mean is how uh, there's an essay called, how can we live? And so when I think of um, together, the question is how can we live? How can, and I ask this question in a variety of different ways in this essay, how can we who believe in freedom live alongside we who believe in safety. We who believe in this thing live at peace and alongside those who believe in this thing. And I believe fundamentally in my heart that it's possible. It is possible, but it takes connection, conversation, and that curiosity that we talked about in order to do it and that commitment to approach one another with curiosity and with seeing value and as opposed to immediately running to all the, the dark. And, and, you know, the, the bigger question, I think that's what togetherness means, but the bigger question is, what's, what keeps us from it? And, you know, ultimately it's fear. Um, when, you know, if we go back to the, the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, there was so much fear. And when we talk about forces that divide us, um, there's obviously fear of the illness itself, which motivated a lot of people. Then we had our public safety responses to it, and that caused fear for a bunch of other folks. But it was very hard for either of those groups, the people who feared the illness or the people who feared the response to the illness, to talk to one another in any kind of meaningful way. Why? Because so much fear Uh, and to recognize we really are working through this together and to see that in one another and not have to run from our negative emotions, but to be able to interact with them and, and uh, embrace them in ourselves recognize them in one another and have meaningful conversations
0: together and actually the pandemic in some ways brought us together because wherever you travel in the world everybody suffered from the pandemic we have that that's one that's a common that a commonality or whatever you want to call it but we all share that everyone in our on our planet shared the pandemic i don't think there's anything in recent times that that's actually happened, so we do have that common uh, commonality. But of course, as you say, how do, how we respond to it is something else. So, um, yeah,
1: without a doubt, oh, yeah. without a doubt.
0: Now, what about your company you founded? Let's Grow Leaders, which is a, this a training firm, and it says obviously focused on human centered leadership development. What is that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're a, a, a global leadership development company. So we uh, help businesses who, and when I say a business, that can be a, a traditional for-profit business, a nonprofit, a charitable organization, or uh, government entities. We do a lot of work with uh, with all of the above. And uh, to help people develop human-centered leadership and management skills and build their culture, um, work, and we work at every level, so we'll work with executives at the strategic level, middle-level managers, and then frontline supervisors, to help them achieve meaningful results and do it in a human-centered way so that, uh, you know, some of the cynical dehumanizing leadership that, that has been a part of things in the past, kind of on a mission to end that. And so, you know, I like to say, no, there's not a single manager who woke up that morning saying, you know what, I want to be a total jerk today, dehumanize my team, and make them, you know, miserable to work with me. You know, nobody wakes up and says that, but it happens quite frequently to where it's a cliche. Why? Well, there's reasons why. There's our biology, our fight, flight, freeze, you know, those kinds of responses that um, hardwire us for things that aren't as productive for working together. Uh, There's the um, sociology of how did we learn to lead? We learned it from, uh, you know, whoever we were watching. And most managers and leaders don't get any training in those roles. And so Stepping in to answer those questions and give people practical tools to be able to pursue their strategy to do it in a human-centered way that's connected to one another, connected to their customers, connected to their communities, that's the, that's the work that we do.
0: So, what's the biggest pushback for that? I mean, I I could guess what it would be. Okay, that's fine, human centered, but how are we actually going to make money if we're going to be doing that and being kind to one another and caring for one <laughs> another? But we're not competing. Yeah, we're not trying to knock over the other guy. So, um, yeah, I, the yeah, the responses that you get. The, yeah, the, <laughs>
1: the interesting uh, uh, the interesting thing there is that when you have teams and organizations, and there's there's at this point a a ton of research out there, but when you have teams and, and organizations that create these environments, your productivity, innovation, uh, and problem-solving goes up immensely. Um, so if I just you know, give you a couple of examples. So um, uh, Amy Edmondson, who wrote the forward to our latest leadership book, which is called Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. she she did some really interesting research around psychological safety. And she found that, like in a hospital, you had these teams that were, were reporting more errors, but they were much more highly productive teams that were achieving much more and had higher safety rates. So how was it that they had more errors? Well, when you dove in, she went and took another look and went deeper. And what was happening is that they had a high degree of trust, relationship, mutual respect, psychological safety. So they were reporting more errors. It wasn't that they were making any more. They were reporting them, and they were reporting them faster, sooner when they were smaller and getting them fixed. Whereas teams without the trust, connection, safety were not having those conversations, and so the errors went on to grow and become more of a problem and more of a safety problem. So, you know, that's just one example, but you can multiply that across so many different aspects of a business is that when, uh, in courageous cultures, the way we say it is, look, if it takes all of a person's willpower and courage to just show up and and get through the day, what are you leaving off the table? What's not happening? Well, they're not all that discretionary effort they could bring to their work, all the creativity, the problem solving, the ability to say, Huh, look at that! That could really help our customer, or wow, this could really improve an efficiency in a process. so, in our own research around this topic, we found that uh the the primary ideas that people would contribute if they if they had the environment that made it to uh, the norm are ways to improve the customer experience, the employee experience, efficiencies and processes um the, you know things that would save or make businesses money so it is an old way of thinking based on um, some really not as effective uh, trends from, you know, going hundreds of years back that uh, limits um, what can happen in a culture that is human-centered. And, you know, and you, you mentioned earlier, well, if we're all nice to one another, kindness and human-centered isn't about being nice all the time. Uh, sometimes it's about having a very direct accountability conversation. Um, that, hey, that is not how we do things here, and that is not what we do for our customers, and that's not how we treat one another. And, you know, that that is a kind conversation because it's in the best interest of the human being or the team, but it's not just that you can feel uncomfortable.
0: Well, the word that comes up when I'm listening to you is is trust. If you you, you learn to, that togetherness and and trust is like really key and key to the well to, to a company and employees and, and the leaders, almost like the same kind of trust that you have with your kids when you're raising kids. If if they trust you, they'll tell you the bad stuff. They feel comf- they feel comfortable <laughs> yeah. enough. If they don't trust you and think they're going to be punished. Um, unfairly, they won't come to you. And it seems to me that's the same kind of thing you're talking about in um, let's grow leaders. I mean, that's. Um, yeah.
1: Leadership, yeah? leadership and management are relationships. They absolutely are. And, you know, by the way, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of uh, we're working on our our next book right now and we're doing a global uh, research study uh, which I'd love your listeners to participate in. It's about conflict and collaboration at work. So, what are sources of conflict? What advice would you give to yourself about a conflict that you had? Now that you're farther down the the line, it takes five minutes, and I'd I'd love to invite listeners to uh, to participate in that if they're interested.
0: Great. So, when you say participate, does that mean online? Is that
1: how... Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's yes. Yeah. It's online. Um, the uh, URL is uh, world workplace conflict survey.com world workplace conflict com, and we 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 have uh, dozens and dozens of countries around the world represented and love to get your voice in the mix too.
0: What countries David do you think are doing it right I uh, I don't I probably shouldn't say the word right but where this kind this concept is working perhaps better than it's working here in the United States or are there any kind of examples that we can look to around the globally,
1: I, <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting question. I think you can find pockets you can find organizations. Um, you know, every every country, it's fascinating to me. So, you know, we do work in Switzerland. Uh, we're doing some extended work in Switzerland right now, and you know, Switzerland has the the reputation for being neutral. Um, well, where did that neutrality come from? It was a whole evolution when you look into it, and you have the French section and the German section, and the other section, and um, and some of the, the conflict that happened back in the day, and they came together and said, okay, wait a minute, we need to figure out how we're going to deal with this, because we do have these different cultures. Right? And so they have adopted a, a way of being, and um, there's a, a saying over there that I, I love that the translate in English, they say, let's put the fish on the table. And what they mean by that is let's put the difficult subject on the table, and let's talk about it. And that's a principle of way of being that, uh, I, you know, Karen, my wife, and I, we both love that saying, and it's one that we use with our other clients, wherever in the world they might be. is Let's put the fish on the table. We don't need to be afraid of these conversations. Um, you know, and part of it for me is let's normalize having the tough conversations with one another. There's nothing to fear if we can enter into that with one another's best interest at heart
0: other work that you're doing, because I find all the the work you're doing is really fascinating, actually. People of Cambodia, okay, you, what are you, you, you are helping to provide clean water to the people of Cambodia. I, I've been to Cambodia just for a few days, so not that long, maybe a week. So uh, how are you doing that? What's, what, what is that program?
1: Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's, it's something we're really passionate about is, um and so you've been there, you know like Cambodia to me is i mean there's different parts of the world that have certainly suffered, but Cambodia is uh one of those places that gosh what what tragic experiences they have all been through, um either by their neighbors, by their own civil wars, and you know all the different uh genocide of uh, just so much so much tragedy so um yeah we're we're very privileged and pleased to be able to provide clean water wells there so what we do is we partner with an organization um, called together we can change the world and they vet and work with uh, local groups that um, do quality work and know the population and um, so they're on the ground locally and so they they screen people and so forth to to make sure that it's going to a good purpose and um, so Every all of the clients that we work with, we'll build wells, we'll fund wells to be built in honor of and in celebration with them to celebrate our work together and then provide people clean water. And why clean water? It is one of the most meaningful gifts that um, that we think you can give anybody uh, who doesn't have it. Your immediate health benefits, you know, we've been able to go and see the wells and work with some of the families and uh, hear the stories of you know, a little four- or five-year-old girl whose grandma is telling us how she was just so sick and six months of clean water, and now look at her. She's running mm-hmm. around and full of energy and life, and and then you see the economic impacts of um, families with the, the clean water who were able to use it to um, um, irrigate some of their their uh, crops and trees and things, and then were able to, with some of the sales of that produce, able to get some chickens, and and they're just building a local economy, Um and then sharing and the uh, the ways that they've been able to share with one another it, the impact of clean water is so hard to overstate uh when you've grown up with it and know it your whole life yeah. um it's it's just radically impactful for for folks and so it's, it's something that we're really passionate about and pleased to be able to do and we've been able to to build uh i don't know uh um, or 130 some right now we're we're gonna get to 150 by the end of the year.
0: I mean, think about it, we only have a couple minutes left and I want you to list the websites we can go to so we don't miss it, but uh, here in the United States, in this wealthy country, what do we do? We buy our water, because if we don't have clean water, we just go to the stand or the grocery store and we buy clean water. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah. two minutes left. So the, the title of David's book, is tomorrow together essays of hope, healing, and humanity? But there's so much more that you and your wife are doing. So, give us some websites to go to.
1: <laughs> sure, tomorrow together is available uh, in Kindle or ebook uh, as well as uh, paperback, um, Amazon, wherever you want to look. Uh, tomorrow together, and then uh, for more about our work, or you can learn more about the book as well. You can go to Let's Grow dot com. And uh, yeah, I'd love to connect. I'd uh, love to connect on LinkedIn and wherever. Um, we love answering questions and interacting. So if you have a question or want to follow up or read the book and go, hey, David, what about this? Please reach out. Love to connect and, and talk with you.
0: Great. David, So much. thank you so much for being on the show today. David, die. has
1: been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.